But first, ER wait times and healthcare in BC. We've had this under the microscope for several weeks now. Steve Mossop is an executive vice president with Ledger, a market research firm kind enough to join me today. Steve, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Rob. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, it's my pleasure. And, you know, I love polls. I guess maybe it's the old baseball guy in me when I can see some analytic that really kind of paints a picture when it comes to what British Columbians are thinking about the healthcare system. So in your most recent report, when you scanned uh, 1,000 BC residents between June the 2nd through the 5th, a lot of people were split on some key questions that you guys had about the healthcare system. Do you want to elaborate? Yes, uh, we did this poll partly because of the media attention that it's received over the last month. I mean, we've seen all these anecdotal horror stories of wait times and and treatment uh, within the ER system. And so there was a poll that we did about a month ago that looked at the overall rating of healthcare in BC and across the country. And that's the starting point. So I'll start there because we found that less than only half of British Columbians say that their healthcare delivery system is good and the rest are saying poor or very poor so we already know that we have a tough grade going into this and then we we decided just a couple weeks back to to focus on the er experience and this is where the results get a little bit interesting so we looked at you know the proportion of british columbians who have been to a hospital emergency room in the past six months is 36 percent. so it's it's a fairly high number and and based on that experience we asked them to rate different elements. And overall, the overall experience, if there's any good news in this, is that uh, a slight majority say that their overall experience was positive. 59% say it was good or very good. And that leaves the remaining 38% who say it wasn't. It was poor or very poor. So, you know, on the whole, it's not all entirely bad news. And then within that, we have a breakdown of some of the things uh, that they experienced. So, Good news is overall quality care is good. Like two-thirds of us, or sorry, 75% of us say that overall quality of care is good. Health outcome, good, 75%. The medical staff paid attention to you. Two-thirds say that they felt uh, they had enough attention. So it's not all bad news. I would say that that's a great stat to hear because especially over the last couple of weeks, if I'm a nurse and I'm driving home or a doctor or a healthcare worker and I'm listening to everybody just bash this industry as a whole with a very broad stroke paintbrush, uh, it could probably be a little bit frustrating. So it's nice to know that the treatment that they're receiving once they're within the four walls is largely appreciated. The other question that I have for you is traveling outside of this country. I was really surprised by how many British Columbians would consider going to Alberta or even south of the border to get their medical treatment. That was a real surprise. It's a, I think it's a pretty massive number when, when we look at it. If we look at the overall, would you consider going to another country for any medical treatment? It's about 40% that probably or definitely would. That's not a small number. Yeah. And, and the story coming out today, of course, is that, you know, the clinics and and just across the border accepting our own cancer patients and getting treatment there but we went a step further we said would you go for dental procedures or surgery or cosmetic and in each of those cases it's over 20 percent so 25 percent would consider going for a dental procedure uh 23 percent for surgery and uh 19 percent for cosmetic so you know we're not talking about a sliver of the population it seems to be a mainstream movement that it's an option to go outside the country to get the treatment that people want 
You know, I'm really curious how social media has swayed people when it comes to making that assessment, because I think before the advent of Facebook and Twitter and and even TikTok, where you can see these short, concise videos that really sell the ability to go to Turkey or Romania to get your teeth done or your hair transplanted. I never would have thought of that as a marketing tool, but TikTok has really shown me that the world has options for Canadians and in particular British Columbians. Do you think that that has gotten that number inflated by the fact that people are like, yeah, now that I've seen it, I would go and do it? I absolutely agree. And I think that Canadians overall hold a perception. You know, we ha- we hold our medical system in high regard, despite some of the recent challenges. We're, we're quite proud of it as Canadians. But there's been this long-held perception that, oh, if I go to a place like Mexico, I'm going to uh, be in a dirty waiting room and, and dirty scalpels. Uh, and and that's really just not true. You know, even countries that um, like Turkey, for example, that are promoting medical tourism, they have some of the best facilities in the world for the procedures that they're doing. So I think those visuals uh, on TikTok and Instagram have really changed people's uh uh, perceptions of fear in, in that category. Yeah. Steve, thank you for this. I love getting analytic and I love giving us a base for the rest of the show. We'll be talking about this throughout the afternoon and I do appreciate your add, time. Uh, one, one quick thing yeah. is, uh, is I didn't talk about wait time experiences. So it's just a small point is that that's where the system kind of falls down. 55% say that the length of the total wait time before seeing a doctor was poor, or very poor. And the total length of time of treatment was poor, or very poor. So that's where that's where we are quite critical, and that's where some of these stories have some merit, uh, and British Columbians are really quite uh, tired of the wait times. Other than that, they seem to be happy with the quality of service. Well, we will dig into that over the course of the afternoon. Steve, again, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. Rob Fay and for Jill, good afternoon. One o'clock hour, got a lot coming your way. We're going to be talking about which fee frustrates you the most. And I'm going to throw some fees at you that every time I talk about it rolls my eyes. Everything from seat selections on an airplane to Ticketmaster, the bank machines, we get dinged everywhere, don't we? Uh, We'll talk about that before this hour is done. But Donald Trump, south of the border, has been indicted again, but this one's a little heavier. And the indictment was actually unsealed earlier today. And yet his numbers remain strong as the Republican nominee. It's, It's just... So engaging to watch from north of the 49th, isn't it? But let's go south of the border. Uh, uh, Alan Sanders, he's an attorney, a former Time Magazine senior reporter as well, and Professor Emeritus of Political Science at St. Peter's University in Jersey City, New Jersey. Alan, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Rob. Well, I'm stumbling along here because I just cannot believe what I am watching. A president, a former president now, of course, indicted yet again, And I guess just instead of me generalizing, this is why we bring you on. Can you break down what this indictment means to the former president? Well, it means many things. For one thing, it means he's in deep legal trouble. If you've read the indictment, it's very detailed with a lot of evidence, and all of the evidence comes from people who are loyal to Trump. And so this is very serious evidence against the former president. Um, So what it means is deep legal trouble. In fact, two of his lead attorneys uh, just left the case uh, to defend him, so we'll have to see who he substitutes uh, to replace those two attorneys. Politically, it's a little bit more complicated. Uh, Trump supporters uh, have a kind of cult-like following uh, of Donald Trump. I mean, it's basically a cultic kind of situation. But the real issue is that uh, these indictments and the defense that uh, his cult-like followers will make uh, for Donald Trump uh, in no way will enlarge the political support um, in the larger American public. 
So you've got a kind of strange situation. Within the Republican Party, he is the leader, uh, and very likely that could solidify in the weeks ahead. We'll have to see. That's not quite yet clear. But assuming it does solidify, um, he could become the Republican nominee. But among the larger population, um, that's not going to happen. That is to say, for every time that uh, cultic leaders back Trump, you've got an opposite reaction. You know, every reaction has an opposite reaction. That's true in the political world. Um, and Donald Trump is universally hated among a large swath of the American public. So you've got a strange situation. Uh, a Republican Party that's kind of stuck with um, Donald Trump, though they realize that he is a kind of uh, uh, difficult uh, load to carry. And you've got the larger American public uh, who's not going to be swayed by this, and probably their anti-Trump feeling will be reinforced uh, by the indictment. Uh, so both reinforcement and anti-reinforcement, that's what's likely to happen uh, down south of the border. So this stems from the documents that he brought you know, with him from his term as president of the United States, left them at Mar-a-Lago. And as we kind of sifted through the, uh, I guess, just not getting too in deep to the indictments as we had the show this afternoon, one of the things that caught my eye right out of the gates was the fact that these documents were pretty much scattered throughout Mar-a-Lago, which is where he uh, you know, set up shop for a, a majority of his presidency in some months. You're on the property. You can pretty much go anywhere. This is what some people down there are saying. So these um, sealed documents that are top secret, you know, some were declassified, some apparently weren't, uh, were just available and just hanging around. So I guess you would say there was evidence everywhere. Well, that's right. And that's what's going to be very difficult for the Trump team to um, argue against. Uh, it seems that they were stored in a very negligent and reckless way throughout uh, the uh, Mar-a-Lago property. Uh, and, of course, if you read the indictment, there's also uh, a lot of evidence there that uh, Donald Trump knew that uh, he had those documents and he tried to hide them from the um, law enforcement authorities. Lots of evidence, text and documents and conversations and so forth. So this is really serious matter because it's not just that they, these are documents documents that belong to the U.S. government, but these are the most secretive documents involving nuclear uh, weapons, uh, battleground plans, uh, conversations with foreign leaders, and um, uh, this is the sort of stuff that uh, uh, needs to be kept secret and, of course, um, endangers our relationship, not just in terms of national security, but endangers our diplomatic relationships with friendly countries. Um, so this is a very serious matter, and um, the fact that they were handled so recklessly and carelessly uh, is stunning. Uh, what we still don't know, which is also really the real question, is why did Donald Trump do this? What were the motivations? Why would he want to do that? Uh, the, the indictment is quite detailed in what he did, uh, but we really don't have any inkling as to what the motivations were for all of this. Well, I think when you hear the word espionage, obviously eyebrows get raised. And um, this is going to be a really interesting couple of weeks as everybody positions himself. Alan, um, special counsel Jack Smith saying that he would like to have a speedy trial. Is that because they just want to get to justice quickly or they want to get this done before we start working further and further into 2024 when the election becomes uh, definitely something on everybody's radar? Well, I think uh, two reasons. One, of course, that's uh, that's what a prosecutor wants in every prosecution, a speedy trial so that we get this done and, uh, uh, you know, uh, the uh, guilty or not guilty plea falls as it should uh, promptly. 
but uh, we are heading into a political uh, campaign season, as you point out. Uh, and then there are some complications that arise. The Justice Department has a policy that it doesn't like to bring polit- political indictments, that is, indictments involving politic politicians during an election cycle. Um, now, this case will not be resolved <laughs> before we head into the political season. So this raises an interesting set of questions. What will the Justice Department do? Uh, I don't think it's likely that they're going to pause the proceedings once they get started, um, but it will raise questions as to whether that policy of avoiding uh, political trials, again, trials that involve politicians, um, whether that uh, will stand up uh, given this uh, case. So some interesting questions will arise, uh, and that's one of the reasons he wants to go quickly, uh, both because that's what law and order should be a quick process, but also because we're heading into a political season. Is there any benefit to Donald Trump having this happen in Florida? Well, uh, a lot of people say uh, uh, the jury uh, that would be picked would be likely to be more um, pro-Trump in the sense that Florida is a more conservative state and there are a lot of political um, uh, supporters of Trump in Florida, more so than in other parts of the country. It's hard to say because, of course, there's a voir dire process that uh, occurs, and one can assume that the Justice Department and uh, Trump's attorneys will go through that very meticulously and carefully. So it's hard to know what the final jury will look like, but there's a lot of speculation, and um, as is the case with uh, a trial such as this one, uh, much of the speculation is just that, so we'll have to wait and see what the jury actually turns out to be. I think it's a fantastic story. I mean, it's chaotic, don't get me wrong, but uh, as a guy at 10,000 feet looking down, it is fascinating to watch this all unfold. Alan, thank you so much for your time. Hopefully we can call on you again. My pleasure, and at any time, Rob. Take care. I've been for Jill for about uh, 45 minutes before Jazz steps in and takes you all the way home today. Uh, One of the stories we've been covering this afternoon, Toronto Blue Jays end up designating Anthony Bass for assignment in the wake of a controversy. That's the headline. Just to paraphrase before we bring our guest on, Anthony Bass is a uh, pitcher with the Toronto Blue Jays who came out a couple of weeks ago on his Instagram, on his social media, and was opposed to Bud Light and those companies that were in support of the LGBTQ plus community. So the Blue Jays said, okay, listen, man, that's not going to work here. We're going to get you to do some uh, conversations with the community. We're going to get you some sensitivity training. We're going to put you in front of the cameras. You're going to apologize, and we're going to try to move on. And tonight was supposed to be the final pillar of moving on. He was to receive uh, the duty of catching the first pitch on Pride Night, and that was going to be the end of it. But then just hours before said Pride Night, Anthony Bass, quote-unquote, doubles down and says that he's going to stay firm in his beliefs. Well, Blue Jays and Rogers Communications, I would assume, said that's about enough, and that's part of the reason that Anthony Bass, he's no longer with the Toronto Blue Jays organization. To speak more in depth about this, sports uh, sports writer with Daily Hive in Toronto, Adam Lasker is kind enough to join me. Adam, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Well, is it as simple as him doubling down and the Blue Jays saying, okay, enough is enough? Like, did he had to? Did he have to be perfect right through the end of this, or could he have stayed true to his beliefs and the Blue Jays could have somehow found a way to cohabitate? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been an interesting past couple of weeks, kind of since uh, Bass first shared that post. Obviously, he's uh, been no stranger to, you know, having interesting activity on social media. He had a controversy earlier in the season where he was talking about his uh, pregnant wife on an airplane and her being forced to clean up. And, you know, people have kind of seen that this is a guy who hasn't been afraid to, to speak his mind. And um, it, it seemed interesting to see the kind of the way that Jay's handled this whole ordeal. Um, 
you know, you saw from the start that they seemed like they were trying to kind of put out these PR friendly statements about, oh, you know, he's moved on and we've moved on and, you know, we, we think he's uh, learned from this and, and, and all that. And then people were kind of going through the, the actual words that, you know, Bath and, and Ross Atkins, the, the JGM were saying. And it seemed like there was never really, a, you know, if you're a 35 year old man who's, who's holding certain beliefs and, and then you say, Oh, I, you know, I apologize. I, I didn't mean to hurt anybody. And then, you know, a couple of days later you're saying, Oh yeah, I, don't worry. I still hold the beliefs. My biggest problem was that I was, I was sharing them. Uh, it, it seems like, I don't know, people were just never really going to be okay with uh, Anthony Bass uh, staying on the roster. And there was a lot of pressure from, you know, the fan base and the media to kind of, you know, move on from him. And it's not like he's a young kid that just came up and realized, so I probably shouldn't have said this. I mean, he's a 10, he's a 12-year guy, so he's fully vested. He's played for a number of teams in some markets where those, uh, you know, words wouldn't fly. But to hear the Blue Jays say, and Ross Atkins, the general managers, come out today and say it's primarily a baseball decision. In his last five games, he's actually been pretty decent, aside from an outing against Houston. So this essentially was a social media play, no? Yeah, it just seems weird. I think that um, I, I know Atkins, you know, in his time in Toronto, he's, I mean, a lot of general managers are like this where people don't always, you know, agree with uh, the words they're saying or they, they kind of are, are forced in a sense to not always speak their mind exactly on, on you know, player personnel decisions and things like that. But this seems like a pretty clear layup for, for the Blue Jays to kind of just say, oh, you know, this is a, this is not our star player, right? This is a guy who's some, like he's, he's part of the bullpen, but he's not, uh, he's not a major piece of the team by any means. And it, it's kind of interesting to see how long this uh, has drawn on for and how many different headlines and stories you can write about it when, um, yeah, like you said, he's a, he's a 35 year old guy. He's a veteran. He's never, you know, really been a, a major piece of the team and, and he's been creating headaches for the organization for, for, you know, the past two weeks or so. So it is interesting that I, I think a lot of people were still saying today that, you know, uh, classifying it as a baseball decision is, is a bit of a strange move. I want to talk about the broader picture. And I mentioned this right on the outset of the show, uh, Adam Lasker, a sports writer with Daily Hive in Toronto, kind enough to join me here on the Jill Bennett show about whether organizations at some point are going to be like, hey, you know what? We really tried this pride thing, but it always seems that we stub our toe on something. And we're just not going to do it anymore. Are we past that as a society when it comes to the major sports and, and the leagues within North America that we're going to do this by hell or high water? Or do you think eventually, whether it's a hockey player with a warm up jersey, uh, an outspoken baseball player, that someone at some point is going to be like, we just don't want to go through the hassle of this uh i think it's just important for the organizations to to realize that if they want to make the uh you know ballpark or the arena or, or whatever wherever they play inclusive for everybody they have to you know continue on uh doing pride nights and i think they should do their you know due diligence uh when they're you know bringing people into their organization uh, you know obviously in a, in a sport like baseball and you know in a north american sporting culture you know you're not gonna have everybody fully always understand uh, but I think that's important from the outset because, uh, you know, to to educate your players and educate your people and to really learn and kind of avoid these these types of situations in the future. Because, like we said, Anthony Bass is, you know, a 35-year-old person. And, and I don't think that whatever, you know, training and resources the Blue Jays put him through in, in the past two weeks really changed his mind on anything. But it seemed like this was, you know, an avoidable headache had they... Had they done their due diligence maybe on, you know, what type of person he is and had they been, you know, a bit more straightforward with uh, with the public and, and their fans over the past few weeks. So you mentioned the fans and you mentioned the organization. And I, I guess my last question to you, Adam, is did this actually cause any ripple effects within the clubhouse? Um, I, it's hard to tell, but I think you, you kind of see it. It seemed like John Snyder, the Jays manager, you know, I believe when he did the media availability about this a few weeks ago, he seemed to be, you know, kind of heated. And, and I think... 
I'm imagining, you know, the players themselves are, are kind of wondering like, oh, like we're seeing these headlines, right? And I'm sure they're getting text messages from their friends and family and, and kind of saying like, oh, like, is this guy really like worth worth it? You know, it, how do you feel about him? I'm, I'm sure, right? It, it's impossible to avoid it. And, and, you know, you see when, when Anthony Bass was on the mound a couple times in Toronto and he was getting booed by his own fans, like, if you're if you're getting booed by your own fans, you want it to be for your performance, right? You want it to be because oh, you know, we're a team with World Series aspirations, and and we're not, you know, necessarily mm-hmm. doing good enough. And so I think I don't know how much of a distraction it caused in the clubhouse. I don't know, you know, how close he was to any of his teammates, or if they, how many of them would would agree with his views. But I think uh, the main thing is they'd have to notice that you know you don't want you don't want a guy to come out into a you know a big situation in a game and the fans don't want him there. So I think it's a the necessary move for, for the Jays to move him on. And I mean, if that's a baseball reason, I okay. don't know, but I think uh, Adam, are, just before yeah. I let you go, let me ask one more question. What would have happened if this was Bo or Vladdy? Um, I think the biggest thing is you would hope that, um, you know, the, the resources and, 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 you know, the, the ways that the team spoke about uh, making Bass a better, you know, more understanding person and all that, you would hope that they would actually go through a proper process of, you know, sort of like teaching people the, the harms of their actions and, and teaching people about acceptance and inclusion. And so you would hope that if the organization were, you know, to say, hey, we're going to stick with this person who's uh, made a mistake and, and maybe has some views that we, we don't, that don't align with our organization, you'd hope that that process seemed a bit more transparent and long term than, uh, than what yeah. seemed to happen here. It's great insight, Adam. Thank you for making us a part of your afternoon. And uh, let's talk again. Thanks for having me. Thank you.